So we come to uh, chapter 24. At this point in Matthew's account of the gospel, we're in the, the final week of the life and ministry of Jesus before he's going to be betrayed and crucified. Um, Jesus has had now a great conflict with the, the Pharisees and the scribes. He, he's finally spoke to them in uh, chapter 23 in a very direct and in a very scathing manner, in, in a rebuke against them. Um, he pronounced seven woes or seven words of cursing and of judgment on them because of their, their own personal unbelief and because as the religious leaders, as, as the shepherds of the people of Israel, they, they were leading and guiding the people of Israel away from Jesus and away from the kingdom of heaven. As a matter of fact, Jesus said to them, he said that they, the Pharisees and the scribes slammed the door shut to the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. And he said that through their teaching, they, they make those that follow them twice as much children of hell as they are themselves. Very sharp, very condemning words here from the mouth of Jesus we read in chapter 23. Um, and, and these things were said in a very public place. It was in the temple of Jerusalem, and, and it was during the week of Passover. So Jewish people from all around had come and to, to Jerusalem to celebrate. So in front of these large crowds and in front of the disciples, Jesus had, had confronted these false teachers. He confronted them to their, their faces in a very public way. And then we read in chapter 24 in verse 1, it says that Jesus left the temple and was going away. So the, the scene and the context here, it, now it changes. Jesus is going to be speaking very privately now to his disciples. And, and the words that he speaks here to his disciples are, are known as the Olivet Discourse. And it's named this because we read in verse 3 that they were on the Mount of Olives. And so these words of Jesus, they extend from verse 4 here of chapter 24 through all the way through the end of chapter 25. If you've got a Bible with, with words of Jesus in red, you can see that, that there's nothing but red all the way through that section. And so Jesus is going to take this long discourse, this time that, of speaking and teaching um, his disciples, and it, it all starts by an exchange between Jesus and his disciples in, in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 24. So look there with me. It says, Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, excuse me, verse 2, but he answered them, you see all these, don't, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So this exchange starts with the disciples commenting to Jesus. Um, Mark and Luke tell us that they were, they were commenting on the grandeur and the beauty of the stones that made up the buildings of the temple. 
And Jesus' answer to them then is, you see all of this? You see all of these things? There will come a time when not one of this, one of these stones will be left. Not one stone will be left standing upon another. And so we can imagine then the, the surprise, the confusion of the disciples as they hear these words. I mean, this, we're talking about the temple in Jerusalem. First built by King Solomon, then rebuilt by those who returned from exile to Babylon, and, and then further renovated and added on to by, to by Herod the Great. This great fixture of, of the people of Israel, Jesus said, would be destroyed without one stone left standing. And so, quite naturally, the disciples, they're inquisitive. They, they have some questions about what's going on, about what they've heard. And so basically, in effect, they say, Jesus, you told us that this thing would happen, but now tell us when this thing will happen. They want a date. They, they want a time frame. They want a, a reference point to know when this event that Jesus has talked about will occur. And in verse 4, Jesus begins here to answer them. But his answer is not what we would expect to this type of question. Jesus does not respond here with a date and a time. Jesus is not so concerned that they, they know the precise moment that these events will take place. He, his concern, rather, is that his disciples would be prepared for these events when they do occur. I was reading this past week of an, an old proverb that says, Forewarned is forearmed. Forewarned is forearmed. Um, when you know something is, is coming, you can prepare for it. You can be ready. That, that's why the ambush is, is such an effective tactic in battle. There's no time for the enemy to prepare a, a defense for it. Um, that's why meteorologists watch tropical storms and, and hurricanes that are, that are over the ocean, and they seek to predict the, the path that they're going to take so that those in the path of the storm can take action ahead of time. Forewarned is forearmed. And so this morning we see in our text we're going to see four key events or, or four um, ways that Jesus warns his disciples about what is coming. There are four different events that will take place before the end comes. And in telling them these things, Jesus prepares his disciples also, by extension, the rest of us who believe for what they will face and, and what we will face and experience in the days ahead. So let's look at those together this morning. First, uh, we see that Jesus prepares his disciples to face deception. <coughs> deception. Jesus says, many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ, and they will lead many astray. <coughs> and so knowing this, Jesus gives them this command. He says, see that no one leads you astray. I went back and, and kind of looked around, and for those who, through history, have claimed to be Jesus, and there are actually a surprising number of them. We read in the, the book of Acts of a man named Thutis, um, and also a man named Judas after him, and they, they rose up and gained a following. The historian uh, Josephus tells us that there were, 
were many more in the first century that, that claimed to be a prophet. They claimed to be the Messiah. And many followed them. Uh, more recently, in, in the last century, we see um, Sun Moon, the, the leader of uh, the Moonies, Marshall Applewhite, the, the leader of the Heaven's Gate cult, uh, David Koresh, the Branch Davidian, and, and Jim Jones, uh, founder of the People's Temple. All of these have, have claimed to be manifestations of or reincarnations of Christ. Later in chapter 24, if you look down in verse 23, Jesus goes on to say then, then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray if possible even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. So there, there will come a time, and as we get closer and closer to the end, that those who are false prophets will perform things that will be so attractive to, and so persuasive that even those that are chosen in him before the foundation of the world might be led astray. If such a thing was possible, even though it is not. And the thought here is that will we'll happen through supernatural means, that, that evil supernatural means. Men will come with, with demonic powers and will be able to, to do things that will grip and will impress and will convince those who claim to be believers. And many who claim to be believers will follow these fraudulent saviors. So therefore, his disciples must be discerning. They must be filled with it and rely on the Spirit of God. They must examine everything through the lens of Scripture. And in order to discern and to examine through the lens of Scripture, disciples must first know the Scriptures. And that comes through faithful, persistent, consistent hard work of reading and studying and learning the Scriptures and sound doctrine. There's no shortcut. One of the verses we'll actually look at this evening is in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. It says, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Trained by constant practice doesn't happen automatically. It, it doesn't happen overnight. But it's absolutely necessary that that happens in the life of every professing believer. Because if not, there, there comes deception. And there comes confusion that, that will lead many to fall away. So let us here take care to heed Jesus' instructions that we not be led astray. So, First, we've seen that Jesus prepares his disciples to face deception. Secondly, we see here that he prepares his disciples to face disaster. And we see that in verses 6 and 7. There, Jesus speaks of wars between nations and famines and and earthquakes. He mentions both natural and and man-made occurrences that will cause violence and destruction. 
But here again, Jesus gives instruction to his disciples. He says, you are not to be alarmed at these things. It's an interesting command. He would give the most natural thing in the world in the midst of disaster and calamity and destruction is to be alarmed. Perhaps even reading through these verses this this morning, it might bring about some anxiousness, some anxiety, some fear, much less actually being in the middle of a war with things flying all around you or be in the middle of a food shortage. Or to be hit with a massive earthquake that destroys buildings and and takes the lives of many people. And yet Jesus gives the command here, see that you are not alarmed by these things. And the only way that I, I know that it's possible to do this is by trusting in the one who is in charge of the hearts of men who is in charge of nations, who is in charge of famines and of earthquakes, who is in charge of every single molecule in existence. As Matthew Henry wrote, Yet where the heart is fixed, trusting in God, it is kept in peace and is not afraid. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, He said, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Incredible promises here from the Word of God to us, even and especially in the midst of, of wars and famine and earthquakes. We've seen this morning that Jesus is preparing his disciples to face deception. He prepared them to face disaster. Thirdly, Jesus is preparing his disciples to face distress. Distress even unto death. We see this in verse 9. Look there with me. It says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So previously, Jesus had talked about general distressing things that that all people will endure. right? Because of the presence of sin in the world, all people, believers and non-believers, will experience certain tragedy and, and pain. 
we just talked about, famine and, and earthquakes and wars. Both believers and non-believers experience and go through those things. However, here in verse 9, Jesus is speaking specifically of the trouble that those who are his disciples will face. And they will face these things precisely because they are his. And historically, we know that, that this is indeed true. Um, Eleven uh, of the disciples were martyred for their faith. The, the first of these, uh, recorded in the book of Acts, it says, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. Church tradition tells us that others were killed by stoning, uh, being thrust through with spears. Uh, they were crucified. Uh, the only one that, that we know to die of old age was, was John, and he was exiled to the land of Patmos to live and, and die in isolation there. We know in, in the New Testament, as we read in 2 Timothy, um, that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul wrote about himself in Acts 20. It says, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Verse 24, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What an incredible passage. But Paul writes there. He, he writes elsewhere about all of the things that he has experienced of, of shipwreck and, and being beaten and, and being imprisoned and, and hunger and, and thirst and, and all of those things. Historians estimate that in the, in the 20th century, in the 20th century, over 26 million people were martyred throughout the world for their faith in Jesus. And it continues every single day. And so this is the life, Jesus says, of the believer. This is the life of the disciple of Jesus. And so we know, as we read the word, as we hear the words of Jesus, this is what we will face, and we can expect it as we go, as we are obedient, as we live for him. So Jesus here prepares the disciples to face deception and disaster and distress, and fourthly, to face desertion. Desertion. Look with me in verses 10 through 12. There Jesus says, And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Jesus had, had, speaking, had, had spoken this way uh, previously might recall in Acts 10 that Jesus goes and he, he sends out the 12 to go on kind of their first short-term 
mission trip, and he, and he sent them specifically to the Jewish people. And it says there, uh, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but, rather, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he tells them, uh, proclaim as you go, saying, the, heaven, the, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. And so he, he sends them on this, this um, mission to go to the people of Israel. And a few verses later, he tells them this. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents, as innocent as doves. He then tells them this. Brother will be- deliver brother over to death. And the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is very, uh, very sobering, very somber stuff we read in these verses. And notice here in verses 10 through 12 that the the people here who are hating and who are betraying are are not those just in the culture at at large. They're not the the academics or the atheists or the agnostics. They're not the degenerates or outcasts of society. They're not the, the governing authorities or entities. The people that are hating and betraying here in these verses are professing believers. It's those within the fellowship of the local church that they will do these things. Those we come to church with and worship with and serve with will hate their fellow believers. The person you pass in the hallway of the education wing, the person you sit beside in the pew, will be those who betray their fellow believers. The word here used for betray, it carries this connotation of turning one over. Or delivering one over to the authorities. And so Jesus says here that those you have trusted most will be the ones who will betray you. In verse 12 it says that their love will run cold. And they will fall away. So here we're confronted with this truth. Again, that, that not all people who profess Christ possess Christ. Not all who, who, who gather together with us are of us. And we don't often like, we don't like to think about this truth, but, but it's something that started very early on. Even in the gospel accounts in John 6, we read there, it says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Paul wrote in, in 2 Timothy, he says, For Demas... In love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. John wrote in his first epistle, says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. There will be those whose love will grow cold and they will fall away. 
in the growing cold, in the, in the falling away that Jesus mentions here, it's especially prevalent um, in times of persecution. Jesus talked about the, the seed that falls on rocky ground. He says, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. These things will take place again within the fellowship of the church, among brothers, those who claim to be brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Jesus here in these few verses prepares his disciples for these things, for deception, false teachers, disasters, distress, persecution even to death, and to be deserted by those who claim to be fellow believers. Again, as you you step back and we look at and we think through these verses in chapter 23 and in in chapter 24, we're we're struck by the weight and the the seriousness of what Jesus has to say here. I mean, chapter 23 is hard to read. It's even harder to, to try to teach and preach through. I mean, Jesus is telling these religious leaders of Israel, the again, these shepherds of God's people, the wrath and judgment that's coming upon them. Over and over, he pronounces curses on them. He he calls them hypocrites and fools and blind. He calls them children of hell. Later on, he pronounces over the the entire city of Jerusalem that it will be left desolate and in ruins. It will be destroyed. Then in chapter 24, as we've seen this morning, his disciples will will face all kind of pain and, and adversity. Some common to all people, but, but some precisely because they are his disciples. So these verses are, are very grim, they're very bleak. But thankfully, very thankfully, this section of verses is not in in verse 12. But Jesus continues on into verses 13 and 14 with these incredible promises to his disciples. Look with me in verse 13. Jesus there gives us promise that those who endure to the end will be saved. Though the disciples of Jesus will face all of the things that we've mentioned this morning, if those disciples persist in the faith, if they stay faithful, if they stay true to the end, then they will be saved. In Revelation, we read that Jesus says to the church in in Smyrna, he says this, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Paul writes in Romans 2, To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor, In immortality, he will give eternal life. For those who are faithful to the end, and by doing so, they prove that their faith in Christ was genuine, that their faith in Christ was true, they will be saved. 
We know that for the disciple of Jesus, all the things that we've talked about this morning that we will face are temporary. Again, in Romans 8, Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He writes in 2 Corinthians, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. There is a beauty and a glory and a peace and a joy and a satisfaction of which nothing else can compare that awaits for those that love Christ, for those to endure to the end. And finally, this morning, we see that Jesus here gives the promise of the spread of the gospel. In verse 14, Jesus says, In this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. This truth of salvation will go forth and it will be proclaimed. The truth of God's perfect, righteous justice demanding a price to be paid for sin. And the payment for that sin is death. And in God's perfect love, the Father sent the Son, conceived by the Spirit. And God the Son in human flesh Sinless in his being and in his deeds, completely fulfilled the law of God. And yet, he was beaten and crushed and crucified for us and for our sins. The iniquity of those who would believe in him was was laid on him, was considered to be his, By God the Father. And therefore, as our substitute, He died for us and for our sins. And in three days, He was raised from the dead, defeating sin and death. And now He lives and He intercedes for those who are His before God the Father. And by our faith and our trust in these truths, we are saved. That gospel will be preached and shared among all nations. Those around the world in all nations will hear the truth. And through the hearing of the truth, God will save. And through the salvation of those from all nations, Jesus will receive the glory and the honor and the praise and the worship that He is due for all eternity. We read in Revelation 7, Verse 9, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. As one commentator put it here, 
Jesus has foretold grievous trouble for his followers in the days ahead. But he does not let them forget the certainty of final triumph. And so may we today, may we go with this thought in our minds. Knowing that what Jesus has said is true. Because of sin and because of wickedness and because of evil, we will face all kinds of trouble and perils. But for those who endure to the end, there is salvation and there is eternal life. And the word of this glorious gospel will be proclaimed to all nations, to the praise and to the glory of the Lord forever. Let's close in prayer this morning. Father, we are... Well, these verses are difficult. But we know they're true. Father, we see the, the, the love here that, that is shown in, in the, the preparation of disciples for, for what life will entail. Growing closer and closer to the end. Father, I pray that you will help us this morning to remember these, these last two promises of salvation and and the spread of the gospel and Lord that they would Lord as we think on them and meditate on them they would would fuel Lord our ability to um, Lord to persevere through those trials that we face and so Father we we thank you so much for your love for your kindness Uh, this morning we pray Father that Father, the Spirit of God would apply these words of yours in Scripture to our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.